0: I think I'm doing those eyes. <laughs> I think I'm in love.
1: It was terrifying. The pain, the, the fear of being eaten. I was drowning at the same time. I just accepted that I was going to die.
2: Was there a bit of fandom for you when he came on? Oh, you know, huge. Yeah, and I did not try to hide. I did not try <laughs> to hide it at all.
3: Out of the box with Serge Niggas on FBI.
2: Epic morning of Sydney Music and Culture News. If you missed anything she played, you can jump online and head to fbiradio.com to catch up on owls or any other program here on the station. Now today on Out of the Box I'm joined by a journalist whose reporting focuses on how politics and policy impact on the lives of young people. Her name is Madison Connaughton, and she's amassed a pretty impressive work portfolio at an incredibly young age. She was nominated for a Young Walkley, has reported all over the globe, and is currently the Australian Features Editor at Vice. Madison, thanks for coming on the show.
3: Thanks for having me, and for that very (laughs) nice introduction.
2: (laughs) No worries, mate. Look, it's a pleasure having you on, but you just got back from an amazing trip. You went to what is probably one of the most volatile places in the planet, the border between Lebanon and Syria. What was the idea behind that trip? Because it wasn't your classic kind of war reporting gig, was it?
3: Yeah, definitely. So I guess the idea was that um, this month marks the seventh anniversary of the Syrian war. Um, and we wanted to go and meet um, a bunch of young Syrian refugees had, who'd been living in a place called the Bekaa Valley, which is on the Lebanese side of the border, but it, it banks right up against the Syrian border. So a lot of these young people had been there for the entire seven years of the war, only a few hours from their hometowns um, across the border. And um, I think someone summed it up really well. The idea was to talk to them and learn their stories and find out what adulthood means when your youth has been destroyed by war. Mm-hmm. Um, so we travelled with um, Andrew Quilty, who's an amazing Walkley Award-winning photojournalist um, who's currently based in Afghanistan. Um, and we also travelled w- with the assistance of World Vision who um, made sure that we were safe on the ground because it is quite a volatile region. It's There's a lot of Hezbollah in the region. Um, yeah, so I guess it was to meet these young people People and, and shine a light on their stories when there isn't like a huge chaotic tragedy unfolding. It's not just pointing a camera in, in a young person's face mm. and, and asking for a tiny like, snippet of news. It, it's trying to give them time and space to say what it's like to, to live in this limbo.
2: And what does what do World Vision do on the ground there? Because obviously there are lots of groups that go there and, and try to help it. Like how are people like that helping over there?
3: Yeah, sure. So I guess the thing that surprised me is that um, it's not sort of like a, a refugee camp that's run by the UN like um, you'd see in, I guess, you know, Bangladesh where the Rohingya crisis is unfolding or in Uganda with the South Sudan crisis. It's it's kind of almost like a mini town where the refugees pay rent to the landowners um, and sanitation is, you know, very low. Limited, well, yeah, yeah, very limited. So... World Vision does sort of like a water and sanitation project there um, because I- anyone who's worked in development knows that that's a huge source of, of illness mm-hmm. is if you don't have fresh water and you don't have good sanitation. And the other thing they do, which was actually really interesting, is they run like a vocational program, um, which is like training for the Syrian refugees in um, there 's like a cooking course that we went along to, and there 's also like a coding course, and I think there 's other ones as well because um, most of these kids don 't go to school. Three um, percent of young Syrians in Lebanon go to go to high school. Um, I think another three percent go to some sort of vocational training. Um, but the idea is to get them out of manual labor jobs. Mm-hmm. Most young people are working in like intense manual labor, earning sort of two three dollars a day working on really dangerous building sites um really young kids so i yeah i guess it's training them up so that they could the cooking course in particular is there's lots of restaurants in the Bekaa valley it's it's actually a pretty wealthy place like you'll be driving along and um go past a winery and it's famous for its wine and you know lebanon's hyper rich will be coming to go to these cellar doors um of these beautiful wineries and you'll turn the corner and there's just tents as far as the eye can see. There's no demarcation wow. from, from rich and poor. It's really quite striking. Um, but, you know, all of those really nice wineries have kitchens and they're going to be paying more than 2 to $3 a day. So it's just trying to get these kids out of that really, really low-level manual labour that is really dangerous.
2: Wow, so there's this level to which like they're almost being taken advantage of in some way, but then they're also being supported. It's such a conflicting situation.
3: Yeah, it's really, really complicated, and it, and it's complicated more so by the fact that you know Syrian forces were in Lebanon until 2006, and they were there for 25 years, mm-hmm. and Le- then Lebanese people see that as an occupation. Um, and you know, five years after this occupation ended in 2011, you have a, Two million Syrian refugees fleeing v- exactly, yeah. So it's really, really complicated. And and the young people in Lebanon that I spoke to had really fraught feelings about there being so many refugees in in Lebanon. They're they're pushing up the price of rent, of food. Um, there's a huge garbage crisis. You drive around the beaches in in Lebanon, and there's just garbage everywhere. And this is a pretty wealthy country, like, mm. but. You know, two, 2 million people being added to, to your population is...
2: It's going to have an impact, yeah. of course. Yeah, yeah. And I mean well, tell us about some of the individuals that you met there as well because you met some characters there who I guess, you know life would be particularly difficult for them based on their their gender, their sexuality, those kind of things, right?
3: Mm, definitely. Um, I mean, one of the women that we met um, who's really stayed with me, all of them did, but I think the, the one that I still think about every day is this young woman, Ahed, and she has a two-year-old daughter named Dua, which means kind of like, to pray um, as the rough translation of her name but I had was sort of 17 years old 18 years old when um, a barrel bomb dropped on her house in Aleppo um, and she was out running errands um, with her daughter who was then you know just a couple of months old and she came home to her house being completely destroyed um, and her husband had been inside the house and he was killed and like her neighbors wouldn't let her like see the house they like pulled her away and she had this couple-month-old kid and she's a teenager and she had to make the decision not to stay and mourn her husband, which is like traditionally in your cult- in that culture you would, for several months, go into mourning. Um, but she had to leave. She had The war was just getting too bad. Um, so over the course of a couple of days she travelled from Aleppo to the Bekar Valley to try and meet up with her parents who had fled a, f- a few years earlier. And, you know, the trip should have taken a few hours like it's really just like a couple hours drive and ended up taking her three days and she's got this right. seventh month old kid
2: <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> you know and she's what at like if she's what 16, I think she I
3: point? think she'd be 18 because wow. it, it was a, it was sort of two years ago and yeah and she's just you meet her and she gave us so much of her time and she is so kind and thoughtful and smart and you know there's always that story with like you know this this refugee wanted to do something amazing with their life, and and that's why we're, we're supposed to care. But you know she wanted to be a lawyer, and she's so smart. And you can tell that she would have been amazing at it. But the other thing that I was struck by her is she hasn't been in school since year nine because of the war. Mm. I think that if the war ended tomorrow, she could like catch up on her life. She is so young. She's twenty years old. She's still so smart. It's this thing of like their stories are really sad, but there's not they're not without hope. Mm, Like these mm. kids are so young and they're so intelligent that if the war did end and there was some sort of like reason that they could go back, because they all want to go back to Syria, they all want to go back to like rebuild their country. Um, It's amazing they
2: yeah through all the trauma they're still able to to have such a deep connection to to the place. You know, it's it's insane really, and I guess it's like a true testament to uh, the human a human character that they're able to yeah just put put up with so much crap. Mm, yeah, <laughs>
3: resilience. It was it was That's a wild. study in resilience for sure.
2: It totally is. Now look the first song you've got for us today is a song that relates to to Lebanon. Can you tell us about this track?
3: Yeah, sure. So this is this song that um uh Uh, camera guy played when we were driving out to the Bekaa Valley in the car because he wanted to show me some Lebanese music because I had like put on some some track and he was like oh this is crap like you need to like (laughs) start listening to Lebanese music but um it's actually this this band called Mashulela Leila and the lead singer is openly gay which is really interesting in Lebanon because it's technically still illegal um you can Get up to like a year in jail, but in practice, the the law isn't really enforced just through like iterative governments getting more progressive on the issue. But there's still a lot of homophobia in the country, mm. and and this ban becoming so high profile has really pushed the issue of LGBT rights in the country sort of right out into the forefront. Um, and the song is, I think it is pretty good.
2: <laughs> it's amazing. It's called Roman, and I mean, look to think about that in the context of, of yeah, a country like that that they're really championing. LGBTI issues I mean wow like it's insane imagine like going and seeing them like somewhere in Lebanon like are they based there?
3: Um, they're from Beirut and mm-hmm. so they got together at the American University of Beirut which is really kind of like their the number one university in the country um, and yeah I believe they're still they're still living in Beirut
2: oh, Would have been amazing if you got to go see them wouldn't
3: it? Yeah just at the uni <laughs> pub like yeah,
0: right. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> الكلام رح يحرق حلقك مش نوي شرح نوايك خلي لسانك بيفصوك خلي الوقت اللي عطي طولك و النفس اللي كنت لك بس قبل ما تهبني I'll you
2: listening to Out of the Box and FBI Radio, my name is Serge Negus and my guest today is Madison Connaughton. She's the editor at Australian Vice. Now, look, you've achieved some incredible things at a very young age in in a space that has, you know, traditionally been dominated by white men. I mean, like, what have some of the difficulties been for you navigating that world?
3: Oh, (laughs) um, well, I think there's degrees that I have run into an awareness that I am not a middle-aged white guy throughout my career. I think it it started right at the start of my first job, where people thought that I was an intern um, or a receptionist. Oh <laughs> it was like very common. It happened all the time. Um, and then I guess as as I have like progressed and done stories, I have tried to. I don't know. I guess I have tried to put myself in a situation where there are not a lot of other reporters. Like I tend to be the only person reporting on the stories that I do. And I don't know if that's because I don't want to be in like a Canberra press pack where I'm running around trying to, you know, form relationships with, with politicians to get stories and stuff like that. Cause I feel like that, that would be an environment that I wouldn't thrive in. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I I think the reason that I get good stories is because I'm the only person paying attention to these things that I care about. Um, and then when people do have a story that they want to share, it doesn't. It doesn't really matter about the gender or, or mm. the. Yeah, I, so I don't. It's know. like you've
2: carved out a niche almost, like in order yeah. to like to find your way. I mean, it's an interesting way in going about it because it sounds like you've had to be like quite creative in that regard, and you've not followed like the well-trodden path. I mean, like, are there any pieces of advice that you could give to anyone in your position to be able to try and figure that 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 out?
3: Yeah, I think you need to be. 10 times more prepared than a male reporter would have to be. Um, You need to know exactly what you're talking about and do all the research that you can. I have walked into a lot of situations where I was interviewing people who didn't take me seriously Mm. because, just to paint a picture, I am uh, very short. (laughs) I am very, like, I, I look younger than I am sometimes. I, you know, I am female and, like... The, the minute I open my mouth, I can just tell that they don't take me seriously. Mm-hmm. And then you're having the conversation and you throw in a fact that you and they're like, oh, OK, you've actually read the paper that I wrote or, oh, OK, you've actually watched all those videos of speeches that I've done. And you have to kind of like earn respect and you shouldn't have to because it is it is just given to other people who might be doing the same interview. But I don't know, I guess if you're really committed to telling the story, you just have to. You have to go through the hoops, and it's really annoying.
2: But I guess, though, at the same time, though, the the challenge that you've had to face by doing that means that you've actually become better at the job than probably most other people are because they know they can get away with probably bullshitting through their teeth a lot of the time. You know yeah, what I mean? Totally. So ultimately, in the log run, it's probably a good thing for you that yeah. you've had the challenge in some way, even though it's fucked up. You yeah, know, you, can't,
3: you can't phone it in. No, I guess. exactly. <laughs> it was interesting in Lebanon, though, because we were in... Um, in these camps and you know it is it's quite a conservative culture Mm. it's quite a still quite a patriarchal culture and i think a lot of foreign correspondents will tell you this but um like western female journalists occupy this really weird space Mm. in more conservative um like environments in the middle east um with the young guys that i was talking to like i wasn't their sister or their mum, and i wasn't their wife And they weren't quite sure what to do with me, (laughs) but that was to my advantage. So we, you know, we were lucky enough to, to kind of travel with Andrew Quilty, the amazing photojournalist, and he would get certain things out of these young guys because he is male and, and incredible at his job as well. He kind of just like blends into the background and, and is able to capture sort of life without them sort of noticing that there is this guy with a camera over there. But I saw that I got different things out of them as well because they were kind of they they couldn't put up that front of being like a dude, mm. and mm. but they weren't reacting to me as though I was I was this woman in the space that was traditionally That's a male space. Really, yeah, it? it was, wow. and they kind of like in the end started like broing out with me, which was great, <laughs> and we were like playing soccer and like all this stuff, and I think you can't think that not being. A white dude is a disadvantage in every situation because sometimes it gives you opportunities as a reporter Mm, because mm. you put people on the back foot a little bit because they're not expecting you and, you know... Catching someone off guard as a reporter can be an incredibly powerful thing. Of
2: course. It's amazing. It's a look, it's like an answer that I think anyone listening would be able to go, wow, that's awesome. Let's go with that. Like, and it gives, a, I guess, a lot of inspiration to young people out there who might be in your position. But I mean, I, the, the young thing is also a factor because obviously you have these inequalities if you're a woman. But I think age is is something that like you hear about ageism in the context of the elderly, where people are like, oh, we're ages to elderly, like we're not giving old people enough jobs. But I honestly think that young people get really knocked over in these situations, like even with my day to day work like people constantly reference my age mm-hmm. as if it 's some kind of impairment in some way i mean like how
3: how do we change that oh i mean i'm not really sure i think I think it's a reality of you know being a young person working in youth media that day-to-day at my job, it's not a problem. Like, I'm sure, yeah. you know, when when you're working in a space that there are a lot of really experienced people. Um, but, you know, the reality is, like, I think that they reference your age because they feel a bit threatened by it. That yeah, you yeah, have totally. gotten to the place that you are by the age that you are. It can be scary for someone who's, like, 35, 40, doing the same job. You know, it makes them question, like, what they've done <laughs> to get there. But, so, I, I mean, I don't know. I... If you if you feel like you're not getting into spaces because of your young age, like you're not getting the interviews you want or you're not getting access to the, you know, conferences that you want to or to the stories that you want to, like that's a real big problem and I'm not really sure how we change that because the people who have power to make those decisions, you know, they might feel threatened by letting you into those spaces or they might not think you're experienced enough or whatever. There's a lot of stuff going on under the surface there. But I think You know, if it's not a problem, if you are getting those interviews, like I do feel like I'm not limited by my age at this Mm. point. Um, Yeah. Does it need to change? I like kind of scaring old people a little
2: bit. (laughs) Totally. You're not wrong. Look, I think that, you know, they're just, it's the same thing that comes out when it comes to any minority groups. There are people that are able to challenge the space and and others that aren't. And so for me, I think that it's probably a good thing that we somehow work together to break it down because there are some people who will just always be disadvantaged by it, don't Mm. you think?
3: Yeah, definitely. Like, and, you know, we we have a editor that just started at Vice as our music editor and they're 20 years old.
1: Wow. Yeah.
3: You know, that's like so young and I would be really curious to speak to them about like what, what that's like in the music industry because, mm-hmm. you know, the music industry is so competitive and, and to get those full-time jobs in that space is really competitive. So for someone to look and see a 20-year-old absolutely killing it at, the, at like an editorship would be... You know, they could get locked out of spaces like that.
2: Of course. We'll look at something we might chat a little bit more about later on, but we're going to get back onto the song. So, the next thing you got for us is Black Lake by Wallace. Now, tell, tell us about this song and, and why you chose it.
3: Yeah, well, I just think Wallace is like an amazing artist that's in Sydney. Um, I think she's originally from New Zealand, but is now based in Sydney. And um, I just got shown this song when I when I moved up to Sydney last year. And I, it was just part of this, like, education process for me of, like, realising how amazing Sydney's music scene is and just being aware that it's so expensive to live in this city. <laughs> like, it's so all right. But, like, everything about it is expensive and yet you somehow have this, like, really resilient group of young people that are making, like, amazing music. Like, I don't know, think of someone like Manu Crooks or, like, Slimset or Rainbow Chan, like just such interesting stuff going on and like of course Wallace um so like as a like a reporter coming to the city i was like there's so much going on here mm. but that's good but then also there's a lot of like stuff that's going on that's bad aka just like
2: just expensive. Yeah. It's almost like it's like these guys are putting up a resistance to the difficulties. It's quite it's quite a classic thing, really, isn't it? That young totally. people are being able to carve out a space in in this city, given that it's so like they're so disadvantaged in so many ways, like mm. financially and housing wise. It's yeah, it's a wild thing. Well, let's let's whack it on. This is Black Lake by Wallace.
4: Skimming on my stones, across the ocean. Why- Ocean, that's where I long to be There while your heart still sleeps Never wash up on the shoreline Wanna make sure
2: This is Out of the Box and FBI Radio. My name is Serge Negus. My guest on the show today is Features Editor at Vice Australia, Madison Knorton. Now, look, we, we spoke a little bit earlier about young people and, and the issues facing young people, particularly your work with policy and government and how those two things interact. Now, can, can you run us through, uh, through of the few of the key areas that you've been focusing on reporting-wise in that regard?
3: Yeah, totally. Um, so, weirdly, I feel like drugs have become my beat, um, but I guess the way I've approached it is not sort of in the traditional vice-does-drug-story way. Yeah, like
2: don't go out and take acid. Uh, and you, just, yeah. you just actually go find the policy <laughs> and you dig it up and you go, okay, look, this is disadvantaging young people rather than going, I'm going to go eat some acid and yeah. go have some fun.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I t- have taken the boring approach. Um, but no, so basically drug law reform, harm reduction um, and sort of how drug law affects young people. We have seen rising incarceration rates in australia and and our drug law really feeds into that i mean it particularly affects young people and obviously particularly affects young indigenous people um new south wales in particular um has really really strict strict drug laws um and an example
2: of, of that like
3: yeah totally so i guess you know on one end of the spectrum you would talk about like recreational use um New South Wales has incredibly low um, trafficking um, quantities for psilocybin, so yeah. magic mushrooms. Uh, I believe that you can only have zero, less than less than a gram, but it's sort of like zero point zero one of a gram of psilocybin, um, and that's a trafficable quantity. So that can see you do jail time up to ten years, I believe.
2: And can you also, I've I've heard that as well with with psilocybin. It's it's class like is like an A class drug in the sense that like you can you can also potentially be charged with like a- assisted So it's out of something super weird because of the fact that it's a poison or something.
3: It's it's under the Poisons Act as well, which so it's just really like strict on this particular drug. And I believe psilocybin, you can actually have less psilocybin than you can have methamphetamine.
1: Wow!
3: So it's just it doesn't really make sense in people's lived experience of of use of drugs. And then on the other end of the spectrum, people trying to get treatment for for drugs. So um, we know that sort of opioid use and heroin use in Australia is rising. Similar to what we've seen in the US, but there is kind of a lag because obviously Australia is always a few years behind. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, we get movies like two years later and we also have a rising opioid problem, which we've seen in the US. Um, but getting treatment for, for opioid um, addiction in New South Wales is really hard. So there are a lot of hoops to jump through to get onto the methadone program. And once you're on the program, actually getting your methadone is... Like people I've spoken to who are trying to make the program, um, they say I don't understand why it's easier to get the drug than it is to get treatment. Like that doesn't make sense Mm -hmm. to me. So there's there's a lot of private clinics that are making a lot of money, Mm -hmm. um, up uh, charging up to seventy dollars a week. Um, for people to access methadone treatment. A lot of people have to travel long distances because there are very few GPs and pharmacies that will give it. So you have people living in regional New South Wales that are travelling two hours each way on the train every single day to get their treatment. Um, And then a lot of people who are experiencing homelessness that are trying to stay on treatment. If you're homeless and you're having to make enough money to get a bed each night and then you're also having to make $70 a week to do treatment like it's pretty tough yeah it's it's impossible to be honest um and you know it isn't the same in other states you know people that have moved from New South Wales to Victoria have told me that their life completely changed because they were just able to go to the pharmacy and get treatment wow, for methadone that's and just to be clear you don't inject methadone like so many people have have said to me like Oh, I'd have a methadone clinic, but I don't want people like shooting up. You don't. You, you drink it. So what it. is it? You drink you it. You drink it.
2: Really? There you go. It's
3: just it's a medicine, and yeah, I think yeah. that's the main thing of of drug reporting is we have to shift the way we think about about treatment from it's not it's not drugs, it's medicine and mm. it's health.
2: How do you feel about like you know when you look at places like Portugal and whatnot that have like decriminalized drugs and and that kind of thing? Do you th- do you think that those sort of policies should be you know, implemented in a place like Australia? Do you think they have a positive impact?
3: I think I sit in a weird space compared to a lot of, of people who report on this area, and it's a growing area of reporting. Like, I used to work for Vox a little bit, and there's an amazing um, drug reporter there called Herman Lopez, and there's other people that are reporting on this because it's a growing issue. But I, I don't know about decriminalisation. Like, I have seen incredible models like Portugal... Um, but then sometimes I look at the opioid crisis in the US and, and think like, well, there's a situation where a drug was legal and it was doled out by the government. Mm. And there was a huge issue because, you know, sometimes the government doesn't handle things well, like, True. you know.
2: But is that a little bit different, though, because the opioid the crisis there now is related to drugs that you can actually get legally that mm. have been, you know, hillbilly heroin, you know, oxycodone, those mm. kind of things. Is, is it a little bit different there, though, because it's what's been decriminalized, I guess, is. Like, because heroin's not decriminalized in the states, no, is it? no, yeah. no. So it's like this; it's a it's a weird gray space, right?
3: Yeah, totally. And I, I guess I just more mean like that as a model for you know, um, oxycodone and OxyContin and and fentanyl were legal drugs mm. um, that were doled out by by the government and by doctors um, who didn't follow their own rules. Mm. Um, and yeah, so I just wonder if decriminalization is always like it is in Portugal, mm. um, and you know. Yeah, there there have been people who work in the drug space who talk to me and say like I'm not really sure about decriminalisation in Australia because we have a culture of excess. Like we love <laughs> we love you know we, yeah, yeah. we we consume drugs in like per capita quantities higher than most countries in the world. We we love them and we you know we drink a lot and like there mm. is this real culture of of excess. So I don't know. I think that you look at Portugal and if we could replicate that here, amazing. If we couldn't, like. You know, maybe there are more nuanced models that we could try, mm. but I strongly don't believe that an incarceration-focused model works. Like, I don't think if prison time is the number one thing that you're threatening people with if they use drugs, I don't think that that's ever going to be a sustainable solution to, to keep people healthy and to to mean that you're not filling your your jails with people who you know, tiny possession charges and like, yeah, it's ridiculous. you know, and young people as well getting into mm. the system for really small amounts of drugs.
2: Well, because that's the thing, like, it's, it's almost like the policing force needs to have some kind of reform, doesn't it? Because they, you know, are locking up more people for, yeah, minor possession and these kind of things mm. than they are for locking people up who are doing big deals, the ones, the people that actually matter in that regard. So it's almost like their focus isn't right, is it? <laughs> or is it just harder to catch those guys <laughs> and it's just easy for them to tick off statistics with, with young people and
3: yeah. people who do it for fun? <laughs> well, look, New South Wales police like that's a whole that could be a whole hour of talk by (laughs) itself but I think the frustrating thing is is you see top cops who retire come out after they've left the force and say we need to decriminalize drugs Mm -hmm. like you had Mick Palmer who was the head of the AFP, and, you know, Frank Hansen, who used to be head of Cabramatta Police during the heroin um, epidemic in the late 90s, both of them are on the board of Harm Reduction Australia. They both believe in, like, serious reform to drug laws. But you aren't seeing that push from inside the police. And I understand that. Police have to follow the line that politicians give them, and politicians in New South Wales take a really hard line on drugs. But if there is going to be any change, I mean, I think the police... New South Wales Police is called New South Wales Police Force. It used to be called New South Wales Police Service. They changed the name. You know, it's a <laughs> public... <laughs> oh, God.
2: That is ridiculous. I never thought of that. Yeah. Isn't that a, that's like a woke moment if I ever had one.
3: <laughs> but, you know, so it's, it's a service. It, it should be It should be working for the community. And mm. if the community is turning around and seeing its young people incarcerated at increasing numbers, like, that's not servicing the community.
2: Of course not it's quite bizarre actually that terminology because it's almost like it's basically propaganda in some kind of way you know it's it's just like projecting this idea that the police is there to kind of lock you up look after you put the strong arm on you you know mm-hmm. like it's like force it's it's quite an intense thing <laughs> isn't it anyway movie God beyond drugs beyond police let's let's get on to the music again you 've got only you by Steve Monite. Tell tell us about this song and why you chose it and a bit of a backstory on it.
3: Yeah, for sure. Um, Well, I guess as a bit of context, my parents moved to Australia just before I was born and they didn't know anybody um, in the country. Um, And they kind of amassed this kind of motley crew of friends and and one of them used to produce um, this show on PBS in Melbourne called Flight 1067 um, to Africa and so a lot of the music that I grew up listening to was music that my mum's friend showed me um, including this song which I apparently was obsessed with when I was a kid. And I hadn't thought about it in like twenty years. And then last year on um FYF Fest, Frank Ocean performed it. And I remember watching the stream of the of the festival and just having the strongest deja vu I've ever had in my life and being like, This is the I Can I? This. I can't swear, can I? <laughs> this is the, the goddamn song. And like Realising that it was this Yeah so it's by this guy Steve Monete And he's a Nigerian musician Who only It seems only really produced this one song But like One perfect song
2: How good's that Well let's have a listen
1: So I made another woman to put out this fire. Come on, Take take it, take it, take it, take it, take it, take it, oh gosh, I just can't do without it, hello Steve.
2: Serge my guest today is Features Editor at Vice Australia, Madison Connaughton. Now, one of the things that you really like doing is you, you like profiling different characters, and I must say you've interviewed some pretty wacky characters. Lisa Oldfield, who stars in Real Housewives and whose dad, sorry, dad, whose husband was one of the founding members of One Nation, is also a doomsday prepper. I mean, wacky, wacky people. I mean, what is it about interviewing these sorts of characters that you, that you really love?
3: Oh, I, well, I guess it's a nice contrast to the other reporting that I do which is very like down the line um I like to try and understand them Mm, mm. and understand what's driving them to the point to do what they're doing so I guess with Lisa Oldfield I came across this tiny line in like some story in the Sydney Morning Herald that was talking about some beef she was having with another real housewife (laughs) and then just like one line in the story was like Lisa Oldfield is like doomsday prepping like like um stockpiling like cans in her in her attic for like the doomsday (laughs) apocalypse and then just like the article did not mention it again and i was like who is editing this section of the smh (laughs) where they are just letting they're burying the lead this is the story so i just like dm'd her on twitter and was like hey can i come see your doomsday shed and she (laughs) immediately responded
2: because preppers love talking about prepping don't they
3: Well, apparently David Oldfield does not love talking about prepping. So we get to her (laughs) house. She agrees. We get to her house. She's showing us around. And David Oldfield shows up, which is like, I'm like, oh, my God, this is the man who started One Nation with Pauline Hanson. Like, he's this incredibly controversial figure who's weirdly, like, just allowed to be on reality TV now. I think he's on, like, My Kitchen Rules or something. Anyway, um, they get in this huge fight. And they're arguing about whether or not you're allowed to talk about doomsday prepping. And he's yelling at you like, kidding. the first rule of prepping is you don't tell people you're a prepper. And
2: <laughs> haven't you seen doomsday preppers on that <laughs> Geo? Jesus Christ, yeah. Oldfield. <laughs> hey.
3: Um, And then they continue to have this, I guess, you know, the telly reports constantly about how fraught their relationship is and they're quite open (laughs) about it, but sitting in their living room and sort of walking around the various doomsday prepping things they have, including, like, an obstacle course they run their kids over to, like, plan for some apocalypse (laughs) or whatever. It was bizarre, but it was also...
2: They live in quite. Do they live in the east or they? No, they're
3: north. So north shore. And they live in quite. Like
2: they're quite wealthy. It's quite like very wealthy. Ridiculous scenario. (laughs) Not who you'd expect to be someone who started one nation. You know, they don't. They're not the norm in that regard are they
3: not at all they <laughs> they're, their property is beautiful it's giant it's in like the suburbs and they showed us the plans for so they're going to be completely off the grid soon when they like implement this like new plan that the they have plan. they <laughs> rolled out the plans and like showed us it and david was talking us <laughs> through all of it and i'm like this place is going to be a fortress like oh, this it. is insane but i like i do wonder if it's some sort of like extension of that like Xenophobia that Mm, was central to yeah the paranoia Mm. of like the outside world and like something's coming for you. Mm. Um, This is just kind of the extreme iteration of of that drive (laughs) that has been there for a really long time in that you know group. Now
2: the key question is, are they as cooked as people think they are? These kind of characters, like, is is there something that we're misunderstanding, or is it they're honestly just pretty cooked?
3: (laughs) I mean, it definitely depends on the person. I have enjoyed hanging out with every single, like, you know, fringe character that I have profiled. I I think that they're really interesting. And, you know, if you're a reporter, the worst thing is like a boring person, really. You know what I mean? And they're definitely not boring. Um, are, they, are they cooked? Like...
2: based on your individual definition of cooked
3: i I mean getting getting into the uber after that old field interview me and the photographer were like what the hell just happened like it was the weirdest day of my life (laughs) but they were very welcoming and friendly to us and as has everyone i've been that i've interviewed that is like a fringe character then they've never been i think they want to be understood Mm. but i think sometimes they don't like the way that you interpret them, and
2: maybe they shoot themselves in the foot sometimes too. I think that or is that giving them too much credit. I
3: <laughs> the the old fields love publicity. Like I didn't feel bad about going out there and profiling them because they are public figures. There are other people um, who I have profiled that I've been more careful with, like Jamie Williams, who was the first Australian um, charged as like a foreign fighter, but he went over to try and join the Kurdish forces um, to fight against ISIS and, and the government went after him. He's not a public figure. And so I was really careful with kind of what I was saying and I didn't want to make too many inferences from what he was telling me because he, you know, he was, gave me his story, which is a massive privilege to have, where as someone like the Oldfield, they're public figures, they understand how the media works.
2: Of course. So it's, you've, you've got to analyze it based on each individual situation. Now, uh, look, moving forward, next song. Who do you love now, Danny Minogue. I mean, <laughs> just this—it's a. It's a bit of a classic, I guess, and it's like... I mean, I don't even know how you'd describe this song these days. I'd have listened to it before and I was like, what is this genre even? It's like borderline pop, borderline kind of like dance. Like, what is it? This is
3: my go-to party song. <laughs> <laughs> this is like, if you're like at a party or you're, you're friends DJing and you're allowed to make requests the one time, this is the song that I always ask them to play because I just think it's like an ultimate party song. Like, I love Kylie, um, but I think that Danny Minogue is this like way more interesting figure so I guess that's how that relates to, <laughs> to yeah, that yeah. thing because like I don't understand Danny Minogue like and what is it like to be Danny Minogue Kylie is like such like a national icon like mm. national treasure mm. what is it like to be her sister and be making music <laughs> that is incredible and stands the test of time <laughs> it's
2: super millennial this song it's like it feels <laughs> like I'm in a spaceship or something yeah it's, it's
3: 2000 <laughs> in a nutshell
2: it really is let's it all. been listening to out of the box and fbi radio my name is serge negus my guest today has been madison canorton she's the editor at vice australia and uh look we've been talking a lot about the industry and these kind of things and being young and, and and being in the media but i mean it isn't difficult for a lot of people but for for these days you know the industry's gone down and especially for young people it can actually be quite hard to to get into this realm i mean what's your experience been like in that regard
3: yeah you i mean i've definitely had to like fight to stay in journalism there's a lot of times when I have really struggled to like make my rent working as a journalist um and I can't even imagine doing it somewhere like the US as a freelancer like where you don't have health care and you don't have all those other things um I guess the thing that really scares me about the state of the industry and that there are so few jobs beyond anything is like the people who can get into journalism you tend to be from a privileged background. Like, you know, you can afford to do years and years of internships. You can go to unis where they have strong connections with industry. So um, so it's kind of like is, is the pipeline that we're creating for new journalists coming through? Are we just getting one type of person? Mm. And
2: cutting it off to the diversity in that regard as well.
3: Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's diversity for diversity's sake. It's incredibly important. But it's also for the sake of, like, the stories that you tell. Like, if you're a journalist, you believe that, like, stories are incredibly important and they can change the public discourse and they can shine a light on issues that, like, really, really matter, right? If you only have one type of person sharing their stories... Um,
2: you get a very skewed perspective, really, don't you? Yeah. And yeah, you're yeah.
3: missing a lot. You're missing a lot of good stories.
2: It's a fascinating thing. I mean, it, like, especially when you look at the issues in relation to diversity. Like, I remember a story that I was really interested by recently was um, I went to this kind of – it was, it was a, a, like a hedge fund mm. that had done this diversity index thing where they looked at kind of like um, ASX 200 company boards that had, like, a certain percentage of, of women on the boards, like something like, you know, over 25% and in comparison to ones that had under 25%. And they found that basically the ones that had over 25% performed 2.5% better than the others – when it came to their profit margins, and then they looked. There at was the, a lot of numbers
3: there. Yeah, I was like, do and
2: do <laughs> then they looked at the all bloke boards that had no women. And they performed seven percent worse than ones that had any females on the board. And mm-hmm. it's just if you look at it, about it in that context, when it comes to diversity, it's like, well, what about if you added religion to that, race to that, age to that? Mm-hmm. Then surely it's going to be a benefit across the board. So it's something that we need to try and foster. But like, how do you do it? these days you know like how do you foster diversity in, in a world where it seems like there are so many challenges to it
3: yeah i mean i i don't know the answer to that i i think as a journalist i think about it in one way um which is where i try to tell stories that are outside of my experience but i'm very aware of the fact and this is this is partly vice as well of being a. Uh, you know, Australian white reporter parachuting into someone else's world. Like, why not just get those people to tell their own stories? Why not, you know, like give them skills and, and give them a space to talk about their own stories? Like, you don't just want to be the parachuting journalist who like is in and out and, and doesn't get the nuance. Um, on the other side, as an editor, I think that editors have a really strong role in, in being proactive about commissioning things Beyond what's easy beyond what's like the the intern that comes from like the really elite university um yeah, I think it should it should be it, it's hard to find you know voices outside of like that pipeline that mm-hmm. that is just easy and it's just there and totally but that's your job like you need to take it more seriously and you need to use like the amazing communities that are popping up like there's heaps and heaps of groups on facebook that are like writers outside of that you know yeah, tell,
2: tell us about some of those like if, if people are wanting to go find this sort of stuff and, and experience different stories from mm. different diverse backgrounds like where, where would they go in your recommendation
3: uh, as readers or yeah, as
2: readers like as people who want to like explore those realms
3: because mm. like um, obviously
2: for you as a reporter and an editor you, you're doing these things every day. So you probably got, you know, an amazing access in that regard.
3: Yeah. I mean, the one that I am really excited by that's coming up as a publication is this magazine from Melbourne called Liminal. Um, And it's this young woman named Leah McIntosh. She's a... um, Asian Australian photographer and she decided to start this publication because she didn't think there was enough Asian voices in the media in Australia um, so she goes around and I think every week profiles are different um, Asian Australian creative um, and they're just really beautiful profiles accompanied by Leah's photography which is like just so lovely and like treats her subjects with so much respect um, and so I mean that's in self, in itself it's a publication that is like great to read but it's also a way to like look and find new creatives that are doing amazing stuff um yeah so liminal i would say is like my number one pick for the week
2: we'll go check it out well look that's about all we have time for today madison look thank you so much for coming on out of the box it's been a pleasure having you on we do have time for one last song though beautiful dress marlon williams why have you chosen this one
3: Oh, my God. What a heartbreak up. This like <laughs> such a sad note to end on. Um, I don't know. I, I am a huge fan of Marlon Williams' music. And I have been for like years and years since I was living in London. Um, and I think it was when his first album came out. Um, and for me, it just really evokes that time. Um, and you know, I was in like a, like my first like serious relationship and it was really great, but I was also like really poor and I was like trying to make it work in London as a freelance writer. Like it's, (laughs) I don't know why, like that's like the naivety of youth of thinking that I could like make it happen in like an incredibly expensive city (laughs) that's cold all the time. Um, so yeah, I think it just evokes that like bittersweet memory for me, um, And it's also like a beautiful song. He has such a beautiful voice.
2: Amazing. Well, thank you so much again, Madison. Coming up next is Lunch with Maya Billick and uh, I'll be back next week. See ya. (laughs)
1: To live for the town, dollar in your palm, you won't slow down. Didn't you lay
0: beside me?
1: My little heart
0: Done. When you're near me, no love more.